Listener production. Hello, Gistners. Welcome back to Just the Gist. And this is another bite-sized true crime mini gist for your dinner parties, a twist of gist for your cocktails. And um, speaking of cocktails, I have to say my fantastic co-host for this episode, Veronica Milsom, is drinking of all things... What have you got, Veronica? Uh, I got myself a vodka mud shake, mm-hmm. um, and mostly because you bought it for me. So I, um, <laughs> you were going to the bottle shop. You were like, "Let's have a drink." <laughs> what should I get you? Um, you said you were having a beer. I said, "Get me something weird." So and you bought gross, me the most. Oh yeah, and gross. Your exact yeah, phrasing. To be honest, it's actually like they're a little warm, which isn't ideal in a mud shake. <laughs> but <laughs> also, um, they're a little bit like I went through a phase where I told myself I wasn't allowed to have dessert, but I could have. Bit of Bailey's ah, um, after dinner, which uh-huh. is very much an old person thing to That's do. Very grown up. Yeah. And mm. um, when you say grown up, you mean like <laughs> ancient <laughs> boomer style. But this uh, it tastes a bit like that. And then it's reminding me of the good times. Although I must say, I feel weird about drinking anything in a studio. Oh. At Triple J, where I did the radio for a long time, they mm. don't let you drink in a studio or they're, they're very precious about it. Uh huh. When I was pregnant and I was worried. About my water's breaking. I was like, please do not let it happen in the studio. This will be a disaster for the office manager. She'll be like, I said no water in the studio. I'll be like, I'm sorry. Came, just popped out. <gasps> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, look, I think they have a similar policy here, but they're yeah. willing to bend it for mm, us. From mud shakes, mm. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll mm-hmm. try not to shake the mud all over the studio. <laughs> I did have the baby the day after I finished on the radio, though. Did you So really? it was pretty close. Oh, yeah. well done. I nearly did water that's everywhere. Self-control. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so fearful of the office manager. All right, so I've got another story for you, another true crime one, and this one's about how wrong we can be when we make assumptions about people's private lives and also about how the most likely suspect isn't always the culprit. Do you have the strangest Google search history? Oh, I feel like the algorithm would be all over the shop for you. I must be such a confusing conundrum oh, for yeah. the algorithm, yes. You'd be on some lists mm-hmm. to, of people watching out for you, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Too much searching of murders mm-hmm. and um, private lives. A lot of grisly, grisly stuff that I've looked <laughs> up, yes. Um, I think I've already mentioned I'm joined once again by the fantastic Veronica Milsom, podcaster extraordinaire, actress, writer. She does a bit of everything, so I'm sure many of you are familiar with her and we're thrilled to have her back for another instalment here. Thank you. This one I'm about to take you through happened in Maryland in the USA in 1980, the year you and I were both ushered into this world. Yes. Mm. Please don't don't tell everyone how old we are. People might imagine we're youthful. Don't include that, Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe just bleep it. Yeah. No, you actually really can, though. I, I don't, don't know about I you, wouldn't but mind. I've been telling everyone that I'm just 30-something for the last few years, <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure. just going to keep riding with that. I'm <laughs> not giving anyone anything more specific, so I probably shouldn't have outed myself just then. You do look very youthful, though. Oh, thank you very Honestly, much. Honestly, but it could be the tan. Or the Botox. Oh. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah, great. <laughs> anyway, getting into the story. <laughs> yeah. It starts when a 17-year-old boy named Larry Swartz rang 911 to report that he thought 
both of his parents were dead inside the house. Okay, not not a funny start. No, no, mm. quite grim. He told the operator he was upstairs in his home and when he looked out the window, he could see what looked like his mother's body on the ground mm-hmm. in the backyard and it seemed like there was a lot of blood surrounding her. Oh my God, but the twist is it wasn't his mother's body at all, so it's fine, everything's fine and this story ends really happily. <laughs> The end. Oh, great episode. Thanks for tuning in. It's the true crime that wasn't a crime. No. The cops moved quickly and when they got to the Swartz house, they found Larry with his nine-year-old little sister, Annie, upstairs. They were alive and unharmed, but understandably very scared. They said they hadn't gone downstairs yet. They were too anxious about what they might see. Uh And sure enough, the cops found that Larry was correct when he said he thought both his parents were dead. Bob and Kay Swartz, mum and dad, were very, very stone cold dead downstairs. Oh my gosh. And it was grisly. Horrific. Bob's corpse was in his home office, sort of sprawled out on the floor in the middle of a huge pool of blood. He'd been stabbed 17 times. Okay, that's more than was necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kay's body was outside in the snow, face down. She was completely naked, except for one sock on one foot. Suspicious. And, uh-huh, she'd been stabbed multiple times, mostly around her neck, and she also had a huge wound in her skull that looked like it was probably a blow from a wood splitter. Both of the parents had been killed in a very savage, vicious way. It looked like the attacks were messy and it seemed like they were probably personal. The person who killed this couple was motivated by pure rage by the look of things. Kay's body in particular had been brutalized. There didn't seem to be any signs of forced entry into the house, which of course, very telling, and nothing seemed to be missing. So it didn't look like no, it was robbery. a robbery. So it's pretty weird, though, that, the, I mean, who knows what your mind's going through when you, both your parents are suspected dead downstairs. But it's pretty weird not to go down and be like, Mom, mm. shake her. She's nude outside. Hey, Mom, you've got one sock on. What's going Oh, what? Like, mm-hmm. to not check her pulse or to not try to resuscitate. Just mm. be like, I think they might be dead. Not going down the stairs. Larry said he was just too scared that the killer might still be downstairs. And so he wanted to stay upstairs and keep his little sister safe while they waited for the cops to get there. I guess that's okay. Yeah. Kind of checks. Obviously, the police started their investigation by questioning the kids, Larry and Annie. Yeah. They learned a bit about the family's background. They learned the kids had both been adopted by Bob and Kay. They also got their first lead to start following to find the killer when Annie told them she thought she'd seen a very tall man with curly hair carrying an axe outside the house at some point in the night when she'd woken up and looked out the window in her room. She gave the caveat that it could have been a dream, but she thought it was something she really did see. And she didn't think to say something about that? She opened up pretty quickly. Oh, about but then it like the to just say to her parents, hey, I think there's an axe wielding man out the house. They think that when she saw what she thought she saw, the parents were already dead oh. at that point and that she may have woken up to the sound of screams. Oh, horrible. Mm. Um, so the second Annie mentioned this person she'd seen out the window, Larry gasped and revealed to the detectives that he and Annie used to have another adopted brother named Michael Swartz. Michael was very tall 
and had curly, curly hair. hair. Oh, all right. So, of course, the cops wanted to know more about this Michael character. Larry told them they were both about the same age, but whereas Larry had always been very shy, very timid, very obedient, Michael was super volatile. He struggled to control his emotions and he was way too rebellious okay. for his parents' liking, so they'd recently disowned him. They'd kicked him out of home, kicked him out of the family, just given up on him. And he was now living in this really grim, rundown, state-run mental health facility on the other side of town. Larry and Michael brothers? Larry, Michael and Annie, They're all siblings. All siblings. Although all Larry and Michael's same, similar age, not parents. twins though. That's right. Not some sort of crazy twin, not crazy twin. Okay. Hmm, interesting. And so Michael is at some other adopted house? He's in a mental health facility. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, very, very grim place and just disowned by the Swartzes. And there's little Annie saying she saw someone who fit Michael's description outside the house carrying what might have been one of the murder weapons on Annie the lie? night of the killings. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you can understand why the cops decided to make Michael the prime suspect. Ostensibly, he had a motive against Bob and Kay. He may still have known how to access the house without breaking in, mm-hmm. and it looked like he'd been spotted at the scene. Yeah, I think the cops are onto it. That's uh-huh. what I would have done. Yep. Yeah. So, Michael, first target of investigation, and the investigators started interviewing family members, colleagues, neighbours to find out what they knew, and they learned that Michael had told several people he wanted to kill his parents before he turned 18, so he wouldn't be tried as an adult, and he was still 17 at the time. forward planning. Mm. I wouldn't even know that necessarily, but I guess if you're in the business of it, look it up. Mm -hmm. Google it at least once. Yeah. (laughs) Not the computers existed back then. No, look up the Encyclopedia still. Britannica <laughs> series that your parents used to have. Mm. They probably have one at the mental health facility as well. It's fine. Yes. Mm. Um, the neighbours backed up the Michael did it theory as well with stories about how badly he'd clashed with his parents. And they talked about fights they'd overheard, claims they'd heard that Michael had threatened his parents. And there was one particularly telling story about how Michael had been forced to spend hours in the backyard every afternoon for weeks using a wood splitter to remove a huge tree stump from the ground as a way of teaching him some discipline. That same wood splitter that was potentially used to kill his mother. Oh, mental note not to enforce discipline through wood splitting. Mm, Harsh punishment might come back to bite you in the butt. Yeah. Uh, None of this, though, was enough to arrest Michael. Even still, everyone in the community was convinced he did it. And when Michael went to his parents' funeral, pretty much every member of what used to be his family truly deeply believed Michael was the killer and they were all really frustrated he was allowed to be there standing next to the siblings that they believed he'd turned into orphans. Catholic funerals are awkward enough as it is. I don't know if you've ever been to I any. absolutely have not. <laughs> well, just picture one of the most um, sombre and awkward occasions you could ever attend. And then, then the imagine being that there. everyone temp- yeah. thinks you're the killer. Oh, gosh. Mm. Horrible. Uh, And you're 17 at the time. So you're already an awkward age, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really tough. 
The thing about Michael that just couldn't be overlooked was he'd been present and accounted for at the hospital on the night of his murder. According to their records, he was locked in his room in the psych ward. So unless he'd snuck out and then been able to sneak back in a few hours later, he couldn't possibly be the murderer. Right. So the investigators decided they needed to test whether or not a patient could possibly break out of the hospital and then sneak back in without anyone noticing. They had themselves locked in Michael's room, just like Mike had been Uh on the night of the murders, and they spent a few hours testing the locks and the windows, trying to find a way to escape, and they couldn't. It was impossible, which left them no choice but to reluctantly eliminate Michael as a suspect. Okay, great news for Michael if he's not the killer. He was off the hook, although a lot of people still believed that there was some way, somehow, he was responsible for this. To sneak out and do a few killings and quickly come back. Tuck himself back into bed. Yeah. Mm. Um, Statements from family and friends were really taking them nowhere, so they put their focus onto using the limited forensic evidence available to them at the scene of the crime. Their main clue was a bloody palm print they found on one of the glass sliding doors that had to have been left by the killer or one of the killers. Yeah, that's a pretty amateur move, isn't it? To mm. leave a palm print. Mm. So not even wearing gloves. It sounds sloppy. like it wasn't, yeah. Very they sloppy. didn't think that it was going to occur that night. I mm. mean, obviously, if Michael's escaping to do it, he would have worn gloves or some such. If you can, <laughs> if you can escape a locked facility, you'd think far enough ahead to wear gloves. He clearly had an understanding of, yeah, Yeah. how to get away with murder Murder. based on Mm. his um, previous statements. Now, it took a hot minute for the FBI labs to figure out whose handprint that was, but eventually they confirmed that the print belonged to another member of the family. Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. The because print was left by... No. Who? Little Annie. What? No. Well, she'd just been down to check if they were okay. I'm just kidding. It oh. was Larry. Oh! The handprint belonged to Larry. Shy, timid, sweet baby Larry. Wow. He turned out to be the vicious, brutal killer. No. Uh-huh. And he tried to set up to frame Michael? That's right. And he made Annie say that there was no... Correct. Yep. What a psycho. Mm-hmm. So what was his motive? So everyone in the community had been so easily convinced that it had to have been the bad son, quote unquote, Michael. But no, it turned out it was the good model son, Larry. Gosh. He was the killer. How weird would he have been feeling at the funeral when everyone was just like bad mouthing Michael, looking mm-hmm. at him awkwardly in mm-hmm. between whatever you do at a Catholic I don't know, what do you do? He felt like everything was just going according to plan. (sighs) Everyone had taken the bait and decided that Michael was the killer. Anyway, when the FBI went to go and interview Larry, he just stopped talking. He refused to cooperate. Yep, Um, He had lawyers who'd advised him, don't answer any of the FBI's questions. So they spent about a year putting together a case to convict Larry for two counts of first-degree premeditated murder. Uh And then just before his trial, Larry finally started talking and he confessed everything, clearly hoping he'd get a lenient sentence as part of a plea deal. And it worked. He got a super lenient sentence by telling the judge how horrible his life with his parents had really been. Oh, gosh. That no one had known about because it was all happening behind the scenes. He explained how abusive Bob and Kay had been towards their kids. It was like self-defense-y kind of situation. 
in a way, more along the lines of he just snapped. He couldn't take it anymore. He'd been through emotional and physical and verbal abuse for years and years. And he explained that his parents were super strict Catholics. They had really unrealistic expectations and they gave out these really cruel punishments to their kids anytime the kids let them down. And this does kind of check out because these were the type of people who were known for harassing women outside abortion clinics. Okay, like, right. That says a lot about Bob and Kay. Sure. I thought you were going to say for harassing women when they cross the road, being like, what? <laughs> Woo! I was going to be like, oh, I know those types. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So no, abortion clinics. Grimmer. Yeah. For sure. Way worse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Plus they'd given up on their son, Michael, because he became a little bit difficult. They had him institutionalised and disowned him and Larry said he just felt the threat hovering over his head all day every day that he might be the next one that they got rid of and then one night his mother said something mean to him and he just snapped okay why was she nude that's weird just (sighs) with one sock we do not have the answer to no that's a very vital bit of information Mm. that's really weird maybe she was about to get into the shower one sock to go No, apparently she was downstairs in the lounge room. She'd made this nasty comment to Larry and he picked up a steak knife from her dinner plate and started stabbing her. Then Bob heard the commotion going on and came running into the room. Larry chased him back into his office and stabbed him to death there. In that time, Kay had made her way outside trying to escape. And that's when Larry finished her off with the wood splitter to the skull. Oh, my God. How she ended up up. nude, he claimed he did not remember because he was sort of claiming temporary insanity and only had some very patchy recollections. It does sound like it checks out. That sounds like an insane thing to do. The thing is, though, the knife wounds looked like they'd been made by a hunting knife as opposed to a steak knife. And the actual murder weapon was never found. So there is a lot of speculation that this may all have actually been premeditated by Larry, that he intentionally chose to use the wood splitter because that would be something incriminating against Michael, who he intended to frame. What's it got against Michael? So weird. Potentially just willing to throw anyone under the bus and Michael was the easiest candidate. That's not a good enough reason, is it? Michael was, he knew he was in a locked up cell. So he would be a weird person to blame for this. Mm. Yeah. Again, like the hand on the glass, he hadn't thought it through well enough. But he'd been through hell and back, this poor dude. True, yes. Um, And look, we'll probably never know the truth. Even though Larry was only in jail for, I think it was like nine years, he ended up dying of a heart attack pretty shortly after he was released. So he's been dead for a while, mid-30s. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, And so... We'll probably never find out whether it was just this moment where he snapped and lashed out at his parents or if it was something that he had then planned and then came up with a very clever defence which got him a very lenient sentence. Meanwhile, Annie... She's the one that's been left behind in the end of this story. Yeah. Thankfully, she was adopted by a really lovely family. Okay, go, go, go. Um, Please don't tell me any crimes took place with that family. Not that I'm aware of. A wonderful end to her story. Let's... Yes. 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 I mean, as if you haven't already looked that up, you just (laughs) you go so deep down these rabbit holes. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We do. No, things did work out quite well for Annie. Oh gosh. Mm. Oh Harry. Is that his name? Larry. Larry. Yeah. (laughs) What a terrible tale. Yes. 
Yeah, you need to find a happy twist to the end of these true crimes. Mm. Does that happen much? (laughs) Very, very rarely. And the real tragedy here, I think... Oh, no! (laughs) We've already done the real tragedy. But the real tragedy is... Larry still had a lot of support from family and community members who were willing to rally around him when he was released from prison. Why? Because they felt like he'd been through this really difficult situation. It wasn't his fault that he snapped mm. and he'd clearly been rehabilitated and they welcomed him back. Oh my gosh, into that's very community. progressive and yeah. understanding. Wow. Meanwhile, though, Michael, who had more of a sort of systemic problem, he was just shunned by the community. So once he turned 18, he was released from the mental health facility. He had no family to take him in. So he ended up living on the streets, Mm. turning to drugs. And then he ended up being convicted of manslaughter because he killed a stranger in a robbery. So he ended up being sentenced to life for killing a stranger, whereas his brother got nine years for killing both parents. Oh, my Lord. Uh, And no one was willing to offer Michael any of the help that he really needed. That, I think, is the real tragedy here. That is the real tragedy and Mm. a problem with institutionalising people. Horrid. And sure as shit wasn't going to live with Larry, that's for sure. (laughs) That guy was not his friend. (laughs) They did not consider each other brothers in the end. No. So that was just the gist of a story that reminds us sometimes it's the least likely suspect who ends up being the guilty one. Ooh, nice mm. end to the story. Thanks so much. Oh my gosh, I got through so much mud shake during that conversation, <laughs> even though I, I was like one. aghast the whole time and I was like in between my, my mouth being open, I was like mud shake. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it, honey. We can't wait to have you back again sometime soon. Oh, thanks for having me. Please do join us once more. Thank you, Jisners. Bye. Listener.